Please take your Bible and turn with me to the first page of the Bible. It's the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. This morning I'm going to read the first verse of Genesis chapter 1, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible today, and encourage your following along in whatever version you might have with you. These are perhaps the most familiar words in the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This morning, I'm only going to focus on the first four words, in the beginning, God. On August the 7th, 1961, at the tender age of 26, Major German Titov became the second Russian cosmonaut to successfully navigate an orbit of the Earth. And he got an opportunity shortly after completing that orbit to speak at the World's Fair. He could hardly contain himself with the information which he was about to share. He stood, as it were, on a platform for the whole world to hear what he was going to say, and this is what he declared. I have orbited the Earth and I have discovered that there is no God. Well, someone quipped after having heard that, had he stepped outside of his space suit, he would have met him. I like what Calvin Miller has to say about one of his predecessors, that is, Titov's predecessors, Yuri Gargarian, maybe that name strikes a bell in your memory bank. After Gargarian had made a venture into space, he made the same observation that he went into space and he didn't see God. And I love what Calvin Miller says about that. He says, looking for God in space is like looking for Moby Dick in an aquarium. It just doesn't work. The most profound question that any person ever asks is the simple question, is there a God? The most recent research from the Christian Religious Research Center at Princeton University, which is connected to the Gallup poll people, shows that 94% of all Americans believe either in God or some divine spirit. 84% of the American population believes in a personal God. Will Durant, who was a historian of some notoriety in recent years, evidently settled the issue in his own life about the existence of God. He didn't have any problem with the existence of God. In fact, he said that the most important question of our time is the question not of communism versus individualism, and that dates Mr. Durant, obviously. It's not the question of Europe versus America. It's not the question of East versus West. It is whether man can live without God. In the 19th century, a philosopher on the continent of Europe by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche declared that God was dead. And after having declared the death of God, Nietzsche also said in predicting that the 20th century would be the most bloody century in the history of the world because of the death of God. You know he's right. This century continues to be the bloodiest century. And a lot of that has to do with the influence of Friedrich Nietzsche. He was Adolf Hitler's mentor. Hitler, as you know, was used, I think, by the powers of evil, Satan himself, to reduce the Jewish population and other undesirable types in Europe, somewhere in the neighborhood of six million people. He reduced the population of Germany and surrounding countries. It's been said if 
Hitler reduced those nations, and remember that he was influenced by this man, Nietzsche, who said that God is dead. If it, It's been said if he reduced the population of Germany, then Stalin, who himself was an atheist, raped Russia. Fifteen million, by conservative estimates, were killed by the atheistic influence of Stalin and the communist question, uh, government. The question is, can man live without God? The answer is unequivocally no. Man cannot live without God. There was an atheist who was certainly skeptical. You would have to be if you were an atheist about the existence of God. And this particular atheist was sitting under a big oak tree. Now, we don't have many big oak trees here in El Paso, right? Where I grew up, my yard, which was not a very big yard, but it was typical of many similar yards in Memphis, Tennessee, had five huge oak trees. And I lamented their presence every fall because the leaves would come down. And also the acorns would come down. Now, I know a proper pronunciation of that word probably is acorn, but I'm from Tennessee, and then we say acorn. So just excuse my ignorance this morning. But the acorns would come down. You know, you have to rake the leaves and gather all that up and do something with it. Either bag it. We didn't have baggies, really. At that time, we burned them back in those days, what we did with the leaves. Well, this man was sitting under the tree, and he was very smug about his lack of belief in God. And he said, God, if you are there, if you are God, how is it that you would build such a big tree which holds such tiny nuts that are almost weightless, and at the same time that you would build such small, tender plants to hold watermelon? He was thinking how bright he was to draw that conclusion, and he was chuckling about it. And then all of a sudden, an acorn fell from the tree and tapped him on the head. And he stopped a moment in his thought processes, and then he muttered to himself, Thank God that wasn't a watermelon. (laughs) For those of us who know God personally, through Jesus Christ, we're going to have to give more reasons than a nut falling on a questioning man's head in order to answer the questions which people who live in a high-tech information age ask about the existence of God. This morning, what I'm going to try to do, and I'm not a philosopher, I'm not an apologist really for the Christian faith, my mind does not run in that groove, I'm more comfortable when I'm just taking a passage of scripture and trying to interpret it and apply it to my life and consequently to the life of the people who listen to me teach the word of God. But I believe it would be important for us this morning to look at some of the arguments for God, the philosophical arguments for God, and in some cases, biblical arguments for God. You noticed when we began reading in the passage of Scripture in Genesis, it's the first book of the Bible, and right out of the box, the Bible says, in the beginning God. The Bible, in every part of its being, assumes the existence of God. It's a given. God's presence and existence is a given. Now, those who do not believe in God, those who would see themselves as self-styled atheists, argue against the existence of God from this viewpoint in some instances. First of all, they say there is evil in the world. And then they further conclude if there were a God in the world, then he would do something about the evil in the world. Nothing is being done about evil. And by the way, I'm not sure that's a valid statement. 
because I think there is a lot that's going on in the way of preventing evil and stopping evil in the world as rampant as evil is. And then finally, what an atheist might conclude after having reasoned thusly, therefore there is no God. Well, let me try to respond to that kind of thinking. First of all, those of us who believe in God could quickly say, yes, there is evil in the world. And it is a big problem for those of us who believe in God. There is evil in the world. Secondly, if there is evil, there must also be God. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what evil is, right? Now, that creates quite a problem for the atheist. How do you explain good alongside of evil in the world? And if there is both good and evil, or are both good and evil in the world, there must be a moral law on which to judge between good and evil. And if there's moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. Therefore, there must be God. He is the moral lawgiver. Let me talk to you about about probably five or six arguments for the existence of God. First of all, what Kant called the moral argument. He said, embedded in the heart of every person is an obligation, as it were, to do good and to avoid evil. That's true, isn't it? There's an innate tendency for people to do evil, but there's also a desire on the part of most people I've ever met to do some good. Would you agree with that? Certainly, there is. Each society, no matter how primitive it is, has a code of oughtness or a code of ethics. It may differ from society to society, from group of people to group of people, but the truth is there are certain codes of ethics which are followed. And these... Ethics are always tied to a belief system that says we are here for a purpose. I was talking to a man last week, and the man said, You know, I believe God has been here for a purpose, but I'm not sure what that purpose is. Well, let me just stop and and say, if anybody here this morning wonders why you're here, may I tell you, it's real simple. And I'm going to give you a, a very simple answer to a complex question. You are here for the purpose of honoring God with your life. That's why you are here. You may not have recognized that yet, but that's why you are still here in this life, to honor God with your life. It's up to you and me to find out how to do that. And the beginning point is to get to know God. And I'll talk more about how that can come to pass later on in the message this morning. If we would try were to try to separate the connection between oughtness and purpose, then what happens is... Society and individuals fall apart. The reason so many people's lives are on the rocks is because they have not made a place for God in their lives. It was Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, who said that every person is created with a God-shaped vacuum and only God can fill the vacuum. And the reason people's lives are out of whack is because they don't have God in their lives. Arnold Toynbee, another historian who has written about the various civilizations of the world, By his estimation, there have been 21 great civilizations of the world. And do you realize this civilization that we know as Western civilization in the 20th century, in America particularly, is the only civilization which has quit teaching its young morals? It's illegal to have the Ten Commandments, for instance, in a school. Is there any wonder that we're on the edge of anarchy here in our country? Is there any wonder that violence is so prolific in our society and in our culture? Another Frenchman who was not a believer in God, in fact, he was an avowed atheist, his name was Jean-Paul Sartre. 
He wrote a book entitled No Exit. He was an existentialist, a nihilist. Basically, he said, there is no God. Life has no meaning. Another man whom I referred to last week, Bertrand Russell, who was the English philosopher who was an atheist also and wrote the book Why I'm Not a Christian, I quoted from that last Sunday. Both of these men's lives were void of any moral content. They were never able to sustain a commitment of love, and their lives were characterized by moral infidelity. Now, let me stop here just a moment. Not all atheists are immoral by even God's standards, they're not immoral. So let's be quick to understand that I'm not here today to try to point a finger at anybody who is an atheist. What I'm saying is that people who pursue that path of thinking usually end up living out an immoral life, but not always. A second argument is what I would call the argument of common consent in addition to the moral argument. And that argument is reflected, I believe, first of all, in the Bible. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, the Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of people. The vast majority of people in the world today and the vast majority of people from any era in the history of the world have believed in God, in a supreme being. So what we could conclude is either the vast majority of the people of the world are fooled, they don't know what they're thinking, or... They're right. And it's more plausible to believe that they have it right. Wouldn't you agree? Therefore, it's more plausible to believe that God is. There is a God. A third argument is the argument from desire. And let me read to you these premises from this argument. First of all, each natural desire in us corresponds to some real object outside of us which can satisfy that desire. For instance... A baby is hungry, therefore there is such a thing as food. A duckling has a desire to swim, therefore there is such a thing as water. A man has sexual desire, therefore there is such a thing as sex. For every natural desire that God has put in His creatures, there is outside of that some real object which can meet the need and satisfy that desire. There is, however a desire in us which nothing in time, on earth, or any other creature can satisfy us. John Paul Sartre, Sartre, let me refer to him once more. He said in an unguarded moment that in the final analysis, you could ask Beethoven or you could ask Shakespeare, and the same question you could ask these great minds or any other great mind in any area of endeavor, intellectually speaking, is, is that all there is? Is this all there is to life? Have you ever had that question pop into your mind? There was a song which was popularized several years ago. And that was the title of the song. Is that all there is? Is that all there is in life? Do you ever sense when you are alone and you're quiet, a deep gnawing emptiness at the very core of your being? That's the question. Is this all there is? Well, if there is something which no object can meet a need in our lives, no object in time or earth or no other creature. Therefore, there must exist something greater than time, greater than earth, and greater than creatures which can satisfy this desire. And my conclusion is that's God. He is greater than all those things. C.S. Lewis is perhaps one of the most articulate proponents of this argument from desire. 
And he said, since there is something in us that has great need to be fulfilled, and nothing in time on earth or any other created thing can meet that need for us, then the only thing he can conclude is that we were made for another world. You know, he's right. We were made for another world. We're made for this world, but this is preparatory for that world which lasts forever. Another argument is the argument from first cause. And let me just share these basic premises with you. The universe couldn't be the cause of itself. The universe couldn't come from nothing, in other words. There has to be some cause behind what we know as the universe. And the chain of causes and effects cannot be extended to infinity. Therefore, now here's the clincher. There must be a first uncaused cause of all things. It's what Thomas Aquinas called the unmoved first mover. And, of course, he was referring to God. There has to be a God if there's effect. There has to be a cause, and eventually you get back to the the originator of all of this. Now, the argument which I think is the most compelling of all arguments, and it's biblically based, is what I would call the argument from design. William Paley, who lived in 18th century England, came up with a great illustration for this. Now, last night I was watching CNN. As I watched it, there was a piece about watchmaking. Uh, Watchmaking is still taking place, believe it or not. And it's taking place probably in greater splendor in Geneva, Switzerland, than any other place. And I'm not even sure I'm correctly pronouncing the name of the watch. Now, this is not that watch, I promise you. But it's Patek Philippe. Does that sound sort of right? had 500 different moving parts. And this watch sells for over half a million dollars. I cannot believe anybody will want to pay that much for a watch. Can you? I guess you'd, some people have a desire for them or they wouldn't be marketable. But William Paley used this argument. He said, if I were walking on the moors of England, and remember he was an Englishman, and all of a sudden I came upon a shiny object which was comprised of levers and springs And all of a sudden I picked it up and it could tell me the exact time of day. Would it make sense for me to conclude from having found that that there was not some designer behind that watch? Or does that just happen by chance? Well, do you know, people, when we think about the possibility of the existence of God, there is great intelligibility. There's great design in the universe. Is there not? And the remarkable thing is that when we look at the various objects in the universe, we, are, we marvel at what we see because of the intricacy of these different aspects of the universe. But not only that do we marvel at their existence, but we marvel at the way that different parts of the universe interface with each other, the way they coexist. Not that they just exist, but they coexist. For instance, the human body. The human body is remarkable. How different aspects of my body will cooperate with other aspects of my body, it just blows me away. And some of them apparently involuntarily. I don't even know what's going on in my structure of my digestive system. I hope it's working. I think it is. My stomach has growled a time or two this morning, notifying me that I haven't eaten anything yet today, but I'm looking forward to going to lunch afterwards and enjoying a meal after church today. The truth is that there is design in the universe. Now, let's suppose I would invite one of the students up here 
and hand the student a bag. And I had ten pennies. And I noted on each one of these pennies a number, one through ten. And I'm borrowing this illustration, by the way, by a man named A. Cressy Morrison, who was the, is the past president of the New York Academy of Sciences, scientists, a recognized scientist. And I dropped the pennies into the bag, and I instructed the student to shake up the bag. And I would ask the student, do you think that I can pick out the penny that has one on it? And the student might say, well, perhaps you can do that. What would the odds be, by the way, of my doing that? One out of ten. Yeah, one out of ten would be the odds of my doing that. But let me say that somehow or another I was able to pick in that bag and pick out the, the coin, the penny that has a one on it. Not by sleight of hand, it just happened that I was able to do that. Then I would say to the student, now I'm going to put that penny back in there and I want you to shake up the bag again. But this time I'm going to pick out the coin with two on it without looking. And let's say I was able to do that. And then I went one through ten. What would the odds of my picking the coin with two out of the bag be? One in a hundred. And then if I replaced the two and went for the three, what would it be? It would be one in a thousand. By the time I got to the tenth coin, the odds would be one in ten billion. Now, those are incredible odds, aren't they? Incredible odds. Now, you might say, if I were able to do that, this game is fixed. It's rigged. How can we look at the universe and see the design and the order in it and not conclude that this arrangement is fixed. It was fixed by God. How can one not observe the universe and conclude anything differently? Please turn to Psalm, the 19th Psalm. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6 say, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. On the way to work this morning, as I was walking this morning, I could not help but sing. Of course, I was thinking about this message this morning. As I looked at the sky, it was about dawn, and I was looking at the sky, and I could not help but sing that line, The whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. Just take a look at the mountains out here. Let me just challenge you to do that when you walk out today. I don't see how anyone could stand and look at those mountains and not believe in design and order. It is incredible. And verse 2 says, Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance is to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now please turn to Romans, the first chapter. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul writes in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The message of the Bible is very plain. 
if we didn't even have the Bible, if Jesus Christ had never come to this earth to reveal God to us, we would still know that there is a God because of His reflection in His creation. He is separate from His creation. Make no mistake about that. But He is a God who reveals Himself through creation. Let me just share a few facts. And I'm just sharing these because I've learned them myself. I'm not a real student of science like some of you are. But I am told by those who are supposed to know that if our earth, our planet, were 10% smaller or 10% greater, life would not be able to be sustained on our planet. Our planet rotates around an axis that's 23 degrees in its tilt. If that axis were to be be tilted slightly one direction or another, maybe a degree in either direction, then the polar caps would expand and expand and expand, and the equatorial region would become so intensely hot it would be uninhabitable if our globe were not fixed on an axis at the tilt or the angle at which it is fixed. And the moon, people might think you could do without the moon. We couldn't do without the moon. Someone has described the moon as the maid of the earth. And it's responsible for the tides and how the ocean breakers come in, the waves take out trash. And the the moon is responsible for the cleansing of our shores and our harbors and keeping our harbors and our shores from becoming cesspools and garbage dumps. And also how CO2 is dumped into that ocean. And the ocean really aerates that. And, And the whole ocean itself is aerated by that. And plankton, which is obviously a form of plant life, takes that CO2 and then emits oxygen as it goes through the process of photosynthesis and gives us the oxygen which we have. If there were not a lot of plankton in the ocean, then we'd be up a creek without a paddle, for sure. The air which we breathe is comprised of 21% of oxygen and 78% of nitrogen and the other 1% is comprised of traces of about another dozen elements. Now, oxygen is very volatile. If we had, say, 50% oxygen in our atmosphere, boy, it just kind of erupt into flame just like that. But nitrogen is just the opposite. It's very inert. It's very inactive. It's hard to mix nitrogen with another chemical. And nitrogen and nitrous products are very responsible for the growth of crops on earth and things that are of plant life. No nitrous materials, we would be in trouble, wouldn't we, as far as our crops are concerned. So how does this inactive nitrogen get out of the atmosphere into the earth? How does that all work? How's that figured out? Well, this is something that really intrigued me when I discovered the answer to the question that it is brought from the atmosphere to the earth through lightning strikes. There are approximately 100,000 lightning strikes per day on the earth. And in that process, nitrogen is infused into our soil. There are over 100 million tons of nitrous materials in our earth, the direct result of lightning strikes. Does that speak of design to you? Or does that speak of chance? speaks of design to me. We hear a lot about the ozone, how we're destroying the ozone. The ozone is 40 miles above our earth, and if it were compressed, it would only be about a quarter of an inch. Only about a quarter of an inch. 
this ozone is responsible for keeping long ultraviolet rays, at least most of them, out of the atmosphere. Otherwise, we would be burned to a crisp and blinded. And then it also is porous to short ultraviolet rays, which are essential to life as we know it here on Earth. Another example of the design of God in Earth. Now, we who live in El Paso are not real crazy about the spring. Why? Dust and sand. It's a bummer, isn't it? It's the only thing bad about the climate here in El Paso. It just makes you cough and squeeze and sneeze and everything. You know, we ought to repent of that attitude. The reason for it, we wouldn't have the beautiful blue skies in El Paso if there were no dust in the atmosphere. Do you know the dust is what makes the atmosphere look beautifully blue to us? Tremendous. And here's something I find hard to believe, but I think the person who recorded it is a trustworthy scientist, so I would have to understand this to be the truth, that every droplet of rain is comprised of 8 million, every drop of rain, I should say, is comprised of 8 million droplets of rain, each of which is encased by dust. Take the dust away, and the rain would not be what it is. Now, I'm grateful for every drop of rain I get in El Paso. Aren't you? You've had a great year for rain. Another example of the design of God in our universe. There could be many other examples which could be cited In the interest of time, however, let it be said that there is so much compelling evidence just from design in the universe that would persuade, I think, most open-minded people who might be atheistic or agnostic that there is some greater being than we know outside of us. Now, for atheists or atheism to refute the existence of God, atheism must demonstrate infinite knowledge and listen to what I'm going to say about this because for an atheist to say there is no God the atheist must have infinite knowledge that there is no being who has infinite knowledge is it possible if you're an atheist here this morning that there would be knowledge that you're not familiar with out there somewhere of course it's possible it's probable it is the truth You've been a real good listener, listening group today, and uh, maybe it's been a little hard to follow what I've tried to share with you today. But in the final analysis, non-believing people, atheistic people, really will never be persuaded by arguments, whether it's the moral argument or the argument from common consent or the cosmological or teleological argument or any number of arguments which men have figured up to try to prove the existence of God. Finally, What you and I have to deal with face-to-face, person-to-person, is God himself. The Bible tells us it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. We will come face-to-face with God someday. So what I want to ask you this morning is a very simple question. Do you know God? Have you come to a personal relationship with God? You say, how's that possible? How can the infinite God become personal? Well, it is mind-boggling, but it's the message of the Bible that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and he invaded human history. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And now he makes it possible, just like these who were baptized this morning, have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ because they have confessed their need for Christ. They have asked Christ to forgive them of their sin. They repented of their sin. And Christ answered their request to come into their heart and forgive them of their sin. God speaks in the book of Jeremiah. He said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God begins to stir in people's hearts. Maybe he's beginning to stir in your heart for the first time ever. Maybe the first time in a long time to really consider the possibility of the reality of God and more particularly the expression of God most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's begun today. It's your lucky day if that's happened today. God is at work in your life. Pascal, I've mentioned him already, knew that you couldn't prove God through argumentation. But he did come up with what has been described as Pascal's wager. And he said that in the final analysis, everyone has to bet for God or against God. And if you bet on God, you win no matter what. Because if you bet on God and there is no God, then you lose nothing, right? But if you bet on God and there is God, you gain everything. You gain everything. But let's say you bet against God. What is the result of that? You bet against God and there is God. You lose everything. You lose your life eternally. You lose the possibility of being fulfilled in this life if you do not have God in your life. And let me just stop here a moment. You know that emptiness that I spoke of earlier today that is common to all of us at one point in our lives before we receive God at least through Christ? That emptiness, we try to escape that emptiness. And the way we do it, we, we push the pleasure button in our lives. We take another trip. We enter another relationship. We go to another ball game. We buy another car. We do all kinds of things to try to fill up the void in our lives. And the truth be known, eventually you get to the point where you can't push that button fast enough. And you just get tired of pushing it. You can't push it anymore. That's why people end their lives by taking their lives. They're just out of gas in most cases as far as pushing that pleasure button. May I say you don't have to get to that point in your life. If you will give God control of your life by asking Jesus Christ to come into your life. St. Augustine said to God in a prayer, Thou hast made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. There is no rest for anybody until he or she gives his or her life to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for the truth that we have considered. We thank You that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us in nature, in our consciences, but Lord, even more particularly, You revealed Yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We ask today, Lord, that people would turn their hearts to Him and give Him control of their lives. Amen.